Shri Gaudiya Vaishnav Guru Parampara Ki Jai, Shri Jiva Goswami Ki Jai, Shri Satsandarvas Ki Jai. Mr. devotees, thank you for participating in this presentation on Shri Krishna Sandarbha. Uh, we, we will continue with our discussion of the 26th Anucheta today. Uh, hopefully today we will conclude the 26th Anucheta. Uh, and today's discussion will deal with uh, the Pariva Sutra and the fact that how it is viewed from the Srimad Bhagavatam overrules any other interpretations or scriptural understandings. A quick review here. <clears throat> uh, we are, of course, uh, dealing now with the fourth Sandarbha, the Krishna Sandarbha. And the Krishna Sandarbha, of course, um, 
follows the three other Sandarbhas dealing with Sambandha Gyan. The three other Sandarbhas relied primarily on a complete and uh, unpacking of the Vedanti verse, Vedanti Tat Tat Bhavidas, Tatvam Yaj Gyanamadvayam, Brahmeti Paramatmeti Bhagavaniti Sabjite. That, that <clears throat> Yana Advayam, that absolute reality of existence, the tattva, um, which has different aspects, uh, those different, that supreme absolute reality, or tattva as it's sometimes referred to, or as it can be referred to, uh, is viewed variously by different uh, seekers and uh, transcendentalists as either Brahman, Paramatma, and Bhagavan. So the beginning three annotated, uh, three, three Sandarbhas dealt uh, with uh, this verse primarily. And we're now in the Krishna Sandarbha. And the Krishna Sandarbha uh, primarily focuses on this verse, iti chamsa kalapumsa krishnastu bhagavan swayam indrari vyakulam lokam mridayanti yuge yuge. That uh, of all the various manifestations of the Supreme Absolute that make a appearance in uh, the material world, uh, prakat manifestation in the material uh, world. Uh, of all those, uh, we must understand that the supreme manifestation of the tattva from our Gaudiya perspective is Bhagavan Sri Krishna. So Krishna's to Bhagavan Swayam. Uh, this particular verse is referred to as the Parivas Sutra. And we've been very comprehensively under Jiva's uh, direction uh, studying uh, the nature of this Parivas Sutra and how, from the Gaudiya perspective, uh, our, our study of scripture is guided by and illumined by this particular verse from the Srimad Bhagavatam. So we've had quite a few classes here dealing with uh, the proper interpretation of the Parivas Sutra. And this has all been uh, coming from Jiva Goswami's 29th Anucheta. So we dealt with the ruling authority of a Parivas Sutra. And the remainder of this Anucheta has dealt exclusively with um, how we're to see other individual scriptural statements uh, in light of the Parivas Sutra and how we are to view different Leela narratives within the Srimad Bhagavatam in light of the Parivas Sutra and even other Leela narratives outside of the Srimad Bhagavatam, how they're to be viewed in light of the Parivas Sutra. So last week we covered the case of avatars 
of Vishnu. And now we're coming to a Goswami's concluding remarks uh, in this 29th Anucheta. So the, the beginning remarks and the concluding remarks of this one Anucheta deal specifically with the ruling authority of the Parivas Sutra according to the Gaudiya perspective. So we'll continue now. So Jiva writes in this last subsection of the 29th Anucheta. Moreover, the latter statement regarding Vishnu's being impelled to accept 10 avatars is deceptive in nature because it promotes karma's insurmountability by employing words like matcha and korma, which apply equally to a fish and a tortoise, respectively, and to the avatars of Vishnu, such as Matsyadev and Kormadev. The following verse provides an example of such deceptive usage. Alas, who can describe the evil of gold? Dusura, the poisonous fruit of the Dustora plant is intoxicating simply because it bears the same name as gold. Further, because sorry. the skand. I'm sorry. You, you hear me, Dula Chandra Prabhu? Yes, I do. Sorry for the interruption. Um, I'm Martin here. The, the regular interpreter uh, has not come yet, so I'll be doing the interpretation today. Okay. So I, I will need, sorry for the interruption, I will need to be allowed as an interpreter. Thank you very much. Sorry All for right, the. There you go. Haribo. All right, we'll continue. Um, furthermore, because the Skanda Purana is a text that promotes the supremacy of Shiva, it is without utility in regard to the present topic, the Kesha Avatar, being antagonistic to the Vaishnav conclusion. Thus, in Skanda Purana itself, Lord Shiva informs him, his son, Kartikeya, even within the Shaiva scriptures, only those statements are acceptable that are in accordance with the sacred texts related to Bhagavan. This too is certainly appropriate because it, the Skanda Purana, is without independent authority in this matter, having an ulterior, having an ulterior motive as expressed in the Bhagavad. Muddy water cannot be clarified by the addition of mud. 
we'll read one more part of the Anakshada. According to the Arakanda of the Padma Purana, the Puru Puranas that established the supremacy of Shiva embody the perspective born of Thomas. In the Machya Purana also, they are said to consist of stories assimilated to Thomas. And it was appropriate for the senior Sutta, the speaker of the Skanda Purana, who did not study Srimad Bhagavata or Srimad Bhagavat, and who disrespected Sri Balaram to utter such statements born out of imperfect knowledge of the truth of Sri Bhagavan, as is said, such is the account some sages put forth, O wise king, but those who speak in this illogical manner contradict themselves. So we can see here the importance of not simply approaching other scriptural narratives or scriptural narratives outside of the um, presentation of the Srimad Bhagavatam and even some of the Leela narratives within the Srimad Bhagavatam uh, without proper concordance with the understanding of the Parivas Sutra. So the Vedic presentation is for the upliftment of the entirety of humanity. And not all of humanity is at the same level of qualification due to the influence of the modes of material nature upon our consciousness. So sometimes our consciousness is overwhelmed by the mode of ignorance. Sometimes our consciousness is overwhelmed by the mode of passion. And at fortunate times, our consciousness can be overwhelmed by the mode of goodness. Now, any of these predominating modes of material nature, and we say predominating because the proper understanding is that we're never fully in ignorance or fully in passion or fully in goodness um, within the material world. These modes of material nature are always mixed to a lesser or a greater degree by with one of the with both of the other modes of material nature. So because the Vedas are there for the upliftment of the entirety of humanity, humankind, living entities who have intellect, and that comes with the human form of life. There is also limited intellect with the other forms of life, um, both the plant and animals, but only in the human form of life 
are we afforded the opportunity to inquire into the nature of ourselves? Um, so, due to the influence of specific modes of material nature, the great sages have provided with us, provided for our well-being, literatures that cater to our specific consciousness. Now, the glory of the Srimad Bhagavatam is no matter what mode of material nature one may be predominantly influenced by, the Srimad Bhagavatam um, can immediately, because of its immense spiritual potency, bring one from any mode up to the platform of transcendence under the good guidance of Krishna's unalloyed devotees. So anyone, no one, no one is barred from study of the Srimad Bhagavatam under good guidance. Of course, we have many Shastric rules and regulations and different social norms followed uh, by different um, segments of society, which would try to put some limitation on the power, the transcendental potency and power of the Srimad Bhagavatam. But specifically with the advent of Sri Prabhu, he cast aside all those social conventions and declared boldly that irrespective of whatever position one may be in, according to social evaluation or social norms, if they understand the nature of transcendence and devotion, then they're qualified to make disciples all over the world. So if they know bhakti, if they've been touched by bhakti and they are qualified to disseminate transcendental knowledge independent of social convention. Back to the subject at hand, Goswami here is pointing out to us that certainly the Vedas of which the Puranas are part of the overall scriptural presentation available for humanity, irrespective of those particular presentations for those influenced by Thomas or Rajas, we cannot simply go to these Puranas and pick and choose different Leela narratives or different verses 
take them out of context and use them as authoritative for our spiritual well-being and for our understanding of the absolute truth, for inclusion in the various truths that comprise the knowledge of a sampradaya. Certain narratives do not fit, and this particular ending of the 29th Anucheta is meant to give us an insight into this. Jiva himself is, is taking a very, very firm position here in regards to the various uh, statements and making it clear to us that they have to be seen in light of the Srimad Bhagavatam generally and the Parivas Sutra specifically. So we cannot take these, this whole narration, the, the whole Kesha narration, the two hairs from the head of Vishnu and apply a literal uh, interpretation. And we can't take statements from other Puranas which seem to classify Bhagavan Sri Krishna as in the same, um, as equal to or in the same category of avataric descents as other manifestations, the other Leela avatars, Guna avatars, um, Yuga avatars within the material realm. They're not all equal. They're not all one. And um, the Parivas Sutra rules supreme for a proper understanding. Now, it will become abundantly clear as we go forward from this 29th Anucheda, Jiva Goswami is not done with this subject because from here, going forward, he further fortifies by the common uh, logic, Nyaya, of pounding the post in establishing a fourfold army in protection of the Parivas Sutra. But not to get ahead of ourselves, let us continue with his detailed explanation here, um, wherein he makes it clear how we as Gaudias and as um, uh, studious students, uh, attentive students, uh, to his toolage are to properly understand uh, these other statements. So he continues, by such an assertion from Srimad Bhagavat, 
Statements to the contrary from other Puranas are superseded. This is to be understood in the same manner as the overruling of one injunction by another in the ritual portion of the Vedas, such as the statement, we shall drink some and become immortal from the Rig Veda, being overridden by the contravening statement just as in this world, the objects acquired through diligent effort, karma, are subject to decay, so also in the next, i.e. heaven, the results acquired through virtue will also wither away. Here also, the logic quoted above is seen to be applicable. But those, and he, he quotes the logic from the Srimad Bhagavatam's 77th chapter of the 10th canto, Prayers of the Personified Vedas. But those who speak in this illogical manner contradict themselves, having forgotten their own proper statements. So this is self-evident. A statement from the Rig Veda that says that we drink soma and we become immortal is certainly overridden by a statement from the this statement from the Chundogya Upanishad, which makes it clear that every, everyone within the material world is subject to the ravages of time, even the residents of heaven. So we can drink Soma and go to heaven. And from our perspective, from the common knowledge that one would have, it seems like an eternity. You are, a, you are a mortal to live in one body for thousands of years. Uh, is an eternity from our perspective, just as our lifetime in a human body is an eternity from a life to, by, from looking, looked at from the perspective of an ant who I'm not sure of their exact life span, but it is not uh, 80, 100 years in human, uh, human duration of life. So to them, we look like gods. We are immortal. We have intelligence. We have arms. We can do so much. Jiva Goswami continues in this Anacheda. And this is a long, this is a long subsection. And we will hopefully uh, get through the majority of it today. Therefore, what the senior sutta expressed in that regard in Skanda Purana concerning Krishna's being the Kesha avatar of Vishnu was merely his own doubt pertaining to Bhagavan's inconceivable nature. Such logic, logical uncertainty being indicated in statements such as one should not strive through reason alone to apprehend the transrational. We cannot underestimate the significance of how Jiva is very methodically bringing these points home for us. And even though the specifics of all the arguments he's making to make it clear beyond 
any doubt the position of Bhagavan Sri Krishna, Krishna Stu Bhagavan Swayam, the Supreme Personality of Godhead, even though, as I said, we may not be able to fully um, enter into all of these arguments comprehensively just to be exposed to the logic that he employs and his mastery of the various scriptural presentations is should be extremely enlivening to us um, as we proceed in our spiritual understanding. He continues, moreover, in the latter part of the same book, in the account of the removal of the moon stigma within the context of Krishna's avataric appearance, it is stated that Vishnu himself, and not Vishnu's strand of black hair, appeared as Krishna, which contradicts its own prior version. Therefore, the import of the story is not that Krishna is an avatar of Vishnu's hair, Kesha avatar, nor does the word Kesha mean hair in this context. It is either a misleading statement or an utterance made out of ignorance of the ontological truth regarding Bhagavan. When we take the time to carefully and methodically go through Jiva's Anuchetas as we are in this presentation, um, all, of these, all of these various points seem are just abundantly clear. And if we can develop ourselves the fine scriptural discrimination that he's introducing us to, uh, it's, it, it certainly serves our spiritual progress uh, immensely. He continues, in light of the above, we can now examine the meaning of the words from the relevant verses of the Vishnu Purana and other Puranas as follows. From the verse of Mahabharat cited in Sankaracharya's commentary on Sahash, Sahasranama, the word Kesha means a ray, Amsu. He quotes from the Mahabharata, O best of sages, because my rays, which shine brilliantly, are called Kesha, the all-knowing ones call me Keshava. We will continue reading thoroughly Shiva's presentation here. Throughout the Vishnu Purana and other Puranas, no word other than Kesha has been used in reference to Krishna's avataric descent. Additionally, it is well known from the Moksha Dharma that Sri Narada witnessed light rays of various colors emanating from Bhagavan. From this, it is evident that the Kesha signifies a ray of light. And these two rays, black and white, were indicative 
of the avatars of Vasudev and Sankarshan. It is thus to be concluded that these two rays belonged exclusively to them. Although belonging to them, their manifestation in Aniruddha, the Purusha who exhibited them to Brahma, is certainly fitting because the effulgence of the avatar is encompassed within the effulgence of the avatari. In this manner, what is stated in the first canto, that Shiva is an avatar of the Purusha called Aniruddha, is in harmony with what is said in the fifth canto, that Shiva is an avatar of Sankarshan. So again, a deep dive here uh, for us uh, under Jiva's guidance into how all of these apparently contradictory statements and misapplication of words um, are properly harmonized uh, with a deep and comprehensive understanding of the Siddhanta of our Sampradaya and specifically the overriding understanding of Krishna's to Bhagavan Swayam. So this word Kesha, uh, Jiva's giving us, th this is referring to rays and the black and white rays are an indicator. They're indicative of, av av of the avatars Vasudev and Sankarshan. And naturally, any lesser um, or subsidiary in the hierarchy of the various manifestations of the Chaturvyuha, Vasudev, Sankarshan, Pradyumna, and Aniruddha, they may, if they are also manifesting an effulgence, that effulgence is there because it is there, it is there in an avatar because it is in the avatari or the source of all avatars. So all this properly harmonized uh, as Jiva has presented here. Thereafter, the meaning of the verse, Ujjaharat Mana Keshal, he uprooted two of his hairs, that's from the Vishnu Purana, is as follows. The verb Ujjahara, uprooted, is used in the sense of uplifted, Udritavan. This means that he displayed these two rays of light, Keshamsu, which were amsas of Sri Vasudev and Sankarshan, having manifested them from himself, Atmana. Here, it is to be understood that even by displaying just these two rays of light, merely a part of the whole, what is indicated is the manifestation of the complete whole itself, just as when on seeing a part of Sumeru Mountain, one may say, this is Sumeru, 
referring to the mountain as a whole. So this again entering into the to the to the to the heart of the understanding here that this manifestation of Krishna and Balaram that is spoken of in relationship to the Kesha avatars has to be seen even though they're coming they're the display as related in the various Shastric presentations Jiva's already explored with us, or for us, I should say, that even though apparently it's Vishnu, who we know is a manifestation of the Sankarshan portion of the Supreme Lord, even though it appears that this manifestation of Vishnu is has in these scriptures uprooted two of his hairs. Really, it simply means that he has bowed down to two rays of the light that emanates from the topmost personality, Lord Sri Krishna, and his immediate expansion, Baladev. Any other interpretation does not stand up. Now we offer an explanation of the verses from Mahabharat, beginning with Sachapi Keshal, the verb Udbabarhe, uprooted, means that Bhagavan Hari displayed these two rays, having extracted them from himself by the power of yoga. The word cha expressing connection to the preceding discussion in Sachapi incorporates the meaning of the prayers offered by the devas conveyed earlier. The word api expressing inclusivity indicates that the causal agency in the matter of displaying these two rays is attributed to Bhagavan, Sri Krishna, and Sankarshan as well. So Jiva's really not leaving any room in his explanation here at the end of the 29th Anucheta for a misreading or a misunderstanding of any of the various statements from the various narratives which he's brought forth uh, here in relation to the Keshe avatar incident. He goes on and he bores down even deeper. The indeclinable cha in tau cha apiti, signifying the conjunction of words not directly spoken in the utterance, 
means that Bhagavan and Shankarshan personally entered into Devaki and Rohini, respectively. Additionally, this same word cha indicates that later on, these two rays also entered into them, Krishna and Balaram, having attained unity, tadatmya, with them. The word api in the same phrase indicates that wherever these two rays entered, he, Mahavishnu, and his amsas also followed. On the other hand, the statement, one of them became Balaram, is made with the intention of pointing out their attainment of identity of Amsa and Amsi, as in the statements, Nara becomes Narayan, and Hari, Narayan himself, becomes Nara. Again, the, the, the in-depth unpacking of the meanings here by Jiva Goswami is, is for our comprehensive uh, appreciation of the narration when seen in the proper light of transcendental understanding that pours forth from the Pariva Sutra. The Anachaita continues. Keshava is well known as the presiding deity of the Maha Yoga Pit at the place called Keshava in Sri Mathura, and he indeed is Krishna. Consequently, this will be illustrated later, discussed in Anucheta 63. In Nishringa Purana, however, the word Shakti, energy, has been used specifically in the sense of Amsu, a ray of light, as an indication of their respective colors, as in white and black are my energies who have appeared to slay Kamsa, Nishringa Purana. This statement is made with the intention of demonstrating that their purpose is identical. This strategy, however, is not found in Srimad Bhagavat. Consequently, the statements of other Puranas are in conformity with the previously stated principle, such as the account some sages put forth, O wise king, but those who speak in this illogical manner contradict themselves, having forgotten their own prior statements. At times, to conceal his true identity, Bhagavan exhibits himself in a different manner, which is then interpreted by sages, each according to their own understanding. Indeed, Srimad Bhagavatam 2.7.26 is in perfect harmony with the verse from Vishnu Purana. It's in perfect harmony for those that have perfect transcendental vision. <laughs> and there, it's in different, 
is not, it can be seen as not in perfect harmony by those who are not play, paying close attention and who, even though sages of the various scriptures uh, may present statements which contradict prior statements that they themselves made in the very same scripture. In Srimad Bhagavatam 2.7.26, the adjectival phrase Kalaya Sita Krishna Kesha, who appears as white and black hair through his part, Kala, should be understood as follows. Now Jiva gives his proper interpretation. The one who, by virtue of his partial manifestation, Kala, or in other words, Amsa, is Sita Krishna Kesha, meaning one in whom such potencies are present, that very Bhagavan himself will appear on earth. Therefore, even the statement of Sri Hari Vamsa Purana, which propounds this type of appearance of the Purusha called Narayan, has been expressed with the specific intention of describing the drawing forth of the effulgence of Narayan and others into Sri Krishna. Additionally, the entrance of all avatars into him, Krishna, is to be depicted with appropriate logic. Again, from our Gaudiya perspective, as, as brought forth from the Srimad Bhagavatam and other scriptural statements in support of the conclusions of Srimad Bhagavatam, we know that when Swayam Bhagavan Sri Krishna manifests his pastimes, Prakat Leela, within a material universe, all, the, all of his various expansions enter into him during such a descent by. Krishna himself and a manifestation of his Leela for the benefit of humanity. So all these statements in, in relationship to the effulgence, two rays of light, all of them have to be seen in concordance with this deep Gaudiya understanding that when Krishna appears, all of his expansions are within his very form of Bhagavan Sri Krishna. Consequently, although in Padma Purana, Uttarakhanda, he is counted among the general avatars, yet in the context of deciding who is supreme among them, Three are broadly said to be preeminent. Nishringa, Rama, and Krishna are complete in six opulences. That's from the Padma Purana, Uttarakhanda section. Moreover, among the three of them, the superiority of Sri Krishna is implied by the rule of the increasing importance 
of the consecutive members of a set. In other words, just the way the verse was presented in the Padma Purana, the sequence of the various manifestations of divinity, Nishringa, Rama, and Krishna, the fact that Krishna is the last mentioned speaks to his superiority over the other two. as consecutive members of a set. Therefore, in Vishnu Purana, when Maitreya inquired into the cause of the non-liberation and ultimately liberation of Jaya and Vijaya in their forms as the three Asuric pairs, Hiranyakasipu and Hiranyaksha, Ravana and Kumbhakarna, and Sisupal and Dantavakra, Sri Parasara, revealed the super-excellent super glory of Sri Krishna alone. Moreover, the asuras cannot obtain liberation from any other avatar if unobtained directly from Sri Krishna. Bhagavan himself has affirmed this fact in the Gita by twice using the emphatic particle eva in the following two verses, to stress the certain degradation of the asuras due to the non-attainment of him. I perpetually hur hurl these vicious, cruel, inauspicious, and most degraded among men into demoniac species alone, Eva, to revolve in the cycle of birth and death. All son of Kunti, Attaining repeated birth in demoniac species, such fools certainly, Eva, do not attain me, but sink down instead to still lower births. It is learned from scripture that on occasion, those who are inimical to Bhagavan attain mukti through the power of fixation, power of fixation, smarna on him. But it is never stated anywhere that any other avatar or avatari can grant liberation to all those who despise Bhagavan. Hence, Parasara pointed out that the supreme manifestation of majesty, Ashvarya, is present only in Sri Krishna, since he alone is able to award liberation even to those who could not attain it from any other avatar. Certainly, Sri Parasara gave a most fitting reply. So here, Jiva Goswami is using to fortify his arguments, the fact that the fact of Bhagavan, Sri Krishna, Krishna Stu Bhagavan Swayam, is the source of all other avataric descents. Uh, he, he's pointing to his Aishvarya, his various manifestations of majesty. And the, the topmost is often um, that quality of, of Aishvarya, which is topmost, is his infinite mercy. And that infinite mercy is displayed when he 
liberates those that are inimical, the demoniac, such 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 ashvarya is not displayed by any other manifestation of the Supreme Lord. This is only done by Sri Krishna himself. Consequently, after having just stated that the direct realization, Saksatkara, of Bhagavan's all-inclusive opulence is the cause of liberation, Parasara found even this conclusion to be unacceptable, having reflected further that Putna and others attained liberation even without such realization, and that Kalanami and others were bereft of liberation in spite of such realization. Rather, in the final prose text, he declares that the true cause of liberation is indeed the supremely astonishing nature of Bhagavan, who is specified as Sri Krishna. Indeed, indeed, even when spoken of or remembered out of malice, this Bhagavan awards a result that is rarely attained by the host of suras and asuras. What then can be said of the result he bestows on those who are replete with devotion. So just to fortify the extraordinary mercy, opulence of Bhagavan Sri Krishna, Parasara goes on to say, even to those in the demoniac class that do not fix their attention on Sri Krishna in, uh, in an inimical manner, he simply by their coming in contact with him, but not really concentrating on him in a specific way to even those demoniac personalities, liberation is granted. From the above, it is to be understood that in the view of the Bhagavat, Jaya and Vijaya were required to take three births because their liberation was possible only through Sri Krishna. For this reason, Sri Narada made the following declaration specifically in regards to him. From the Srimad Bhagavatam, Narada speaks, out of enmity, kings like Sisupal, Pundra, and Salva constantly thought of Krishna's gait, play, glance, and so on, even while lying down on their beds or sitting comfortably. Consequently, their minds were imprinted with the shape of Krishna's form, and ultimately they attained the liberated state of similarity with his form. What then can be said of those whose minds are lovingly attached to him?
I'm going to quickly finish this Anucheta uh, in our time left here. And we may go on over a couple minutes, but uh, this will allow us to push forward into the next Anucheta in our next class. Another verse from a Srimad Bhagavatam spoken by Sri Brahma. Pralamba, Danuka, Baka, Kesha, Arista, and Restors, Shanura, and Mustika, the elephant, Kuvalapyapida, Kamsa, Kalayavana, Naraka, Pundraka, and others such as Salva, Dravida, Balvala, Antavakra, and the seven bulls, Sambara, Viduratha, Rukmi, the kings of Cambodia, the Machyas, the Kurus, the Kekayas, the Srinjayas, and other war warriors on the battlefield armed with bow will be killed by Sri Hari Krishna himself under the names of Balaram, Arjuna, Bhima, and so on, and will attain to his abode. Sri Krishna is the bestower of liberation to all whom he kills by his supreme prowess, because his nature is such that he overwhelmingly attracts the heart of one who remembers him by whatsoever means. This type of nature, however, is not found in other avatars. Hence, they cannot award liberation to the enemies killed by them. As such, Vena, who was inimical toward Vishnu, did not attain liberation because he was lacking the same degree of mental fixity of Aish on Sri Krishna as found in those enemies already referred to. For this reason, only Sri Narada concluded. Therefore, one should fix one's mind on Krishna by any means whatsoever. It is thus established that Sri Krishna does indeed possess all surpassing extraordinary potency. In this manner, having dismissed views to the contrary by offering congenial explanations, even of oppositional statements, it has been fortified that Sri Krishna is indeed Swayam Bhagavan. In this regard, it is seen even in the Vedanta Sutra and other such books that a great saying, saying, Mahavakya, is established by removing the opposition of various statements. Consequently, such a process should not be disregarded, thinking that its relevance is applicable only to Srimad Bhagavat. It is only the strength or weakness of particular statements that it is to be considered and not their abundance or rarity. It is observed even in practical life that a single hero can defeat thousands of soldiers in battle. Similarly, it is precisely due to the removal of diverse oppositions that Krishna affirms that in all the Vedas, the reality be, to be signified, Abhideyatva, culminates in the Supreme Brahman known as Sri Krishna himself. No one in the world 
besides me knows the heart of the Veda, what it enjoins and prohibits in its Karmakanda portion, what it reveals through mantras and aphorisms in its portion dealing with the worship of gods, and what it concludes after examining various alternatives in its Gyankanda division. It prescribes me alone in the form of ritual action in its Karmakanda. It reveals me alone in the form of various devas in its Upasandakanda. And it establishes me alone as the ultimate truth in its Gyanakanda. After setting forth and then denying various propositions, after submitting various propositions, Vikalpya, the reality, Vastu, that is established by denying all other opinions, Apoyate is I, Sri Krishna, alone. This concludes Jiva Goswami's 29th Anucheda, a very comprehensive Anucheda dealing with uh, establishing the proper understanding of scriptural statements in light of the Pariva Sutra. I recognize there was a lot of uh, reading today, but hopefully you are all able to concentrate uh, completely on what Jiva Goswami was putting forth here and enter deeply into the magnificence of his presentation. Are there any questions in regards to any of the points that Jiva Goswami raised? If not, I will thank you so much for your kind association in attendance. Vanchakapatubhyascha, Kripasindabhivacha, Patitanam, Pamanebhyo, Vaishnavidyo, Namo Namaha. Hare Krishna. Krishna Kirtana Vanana Tanapano